Hello, I'll be reading from the New International Version, Psalms 117, verses 1 through 2. Praise the Lord, Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. For great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Amen. Wow, that was excellent. Good morning. I'd like to thank the elders for giving me this opportunity. And uh, it is a huge responsibility to be up here bringing a message from God's Word. The elders have determined that this year's theme is about having Christ vision, seeing things the way God does, and not just seeing that perspective, but applying it in our lives in the way we live our lives, and the way we live out our faith. Why is that important? Why is it so important to concentrate on having Christ's vision? Well, because too often we default to listening to the voices of our age, as Jim spoke about during the Lord's Supper. There are all kinds of voices telling us things, and it just gets repeated over and over and over, and it it sometimes feels like it's just easy to go living our lives and just getting sucked into those thought patterns. And it seems innocent, but in reality, it's a set of thought patterns that are contrary to God's way of seeing things. In other words, they aren't in line with reality. God's word tells us the truth. Jesus said that God's word is truth. And anything that goes against that isn't real. It's a lie. And we can't just coast through our lives because having Christ vision is actually an act of will. Please turn to me, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. And I want us to focus on exactly what Paul, what the Holy Spirit through Paul is, is telling us here. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Think about that. God wants us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That takes effort. It's a choice to present myself as a sacrifice. I'm a selfish being. And I have to work to overcome this worldly tendency towards looking inward instead of looking upwards. It's often been said the only problem with a living sacrifice is that it tends to want to crawl off the altar. And we need to make a choice not to do that. And the very next verse tells us how. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We need to change the way we think. 
That's not as easy as it is to say. Randy mentioned that, no, I think it was uh, Joel in this morning's lesson, mentioned in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, that God has prepared us for this because he's given us everything that we need for life and for godliness. So how do we recognize the difference? How do we recognize when we're falling into those default thought patterns that the world is trying to get us to buy into? It's what I call through um, what I call convenient phrases. We hear these phrases all the time. One example, in my opinion, well, what does Proverbs 3 say? Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8 says, lean not on your own understanding. Well, I know in my heart, but Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Well, I feel, well, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 30 through 33 tells us God is not the author of confusion. So what does that mean? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 4, 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. We need to turn our thinking towards what God has written. First Peter says, everything we need is there. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that the scriptures give us everything that we need to be perfect towards every good work. So anything we find in here is going to inform us what is good. We might hear, well, it's different today. You can't really go by this ancient book. But Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 9 to 19, tells us there is nothing new under the sun. Well, we've always done it this way, or the group down the street does this. 2 Corinthians 10, 12 tells us that those who compare themselves by themselves are not wise. And let's look at an inspired example of how someone treated the Word of God. A whole group of people, in fact. Acts 17, starting in verse 10. Paul is traveling in his missionary journey. And Paul and Silas end up in Berea. And they're preaching the gospel. And this is what Luke's record tells us. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness and examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Their reference was God's word, and the Holy Spirit says that they were more noble. 
They didn't just take the word of what someone said. They cross-checked it with the word of God. Nowadays in society, the message is being pushed that if you say anything about living together or uh, homosexual relationships, that you're not loving, that you're racist or homophobic or something like that. It's just a different way, a different way of living, a different lifestyle. But Ephesians 5 Verses 5 to 12 tells us it's shameful to even speak about these kinds of activities. Well, I know what's right for me. That wasn't Paul's attitude. In Philippians 3, verses 12 to 15, he said, I've not yet attained it. He was still striving. Here's another phrase that I've heard myself. Well, you know, if it doesn't work out, you can always get a divorce. But that's not what Malachi chapter 2 says. Turn with me to Malachi 2, starting in verse 13. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. We're often told, look inside for your inner truth. Jeremiah 10.23 should be familiar to all of us. I know, O Lord, the way of man is not in himself, that it's not in man who walks to direct his steps. Or how about this? Hey, it's not my job. But Galatians 6, verses 7 to 10 tells us, as you have opportunity, it is my job. Well, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. Is that God's attitude? As Jim mentioned, Psalm 103, verses 8 to 17 says, God removes our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. Can you think of a bigger separation? So, we have a choice between worldly wisdom or God's word. 1 Corinthians, Paul contrasts those two. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God's word is so far above anything this world could provide. But the world sees it as foolish. You believe in that stuff? Right here. Paul is telling us we're going to be ridiculed for believing the truth of God's word. But we need to persist in seeing reality as God sees it. Why is this so important? Why do we need to have Christ vision? Go back up a verse to verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Using worldly wisdom robs the gospel of its power. Well, how can we understand? How does it rob the gospel of its power? Let's look at an example. The Old Testament was given for our learning. So let's go back and see an example of this contrast between letting our thinking be controlled by what's out in the world versus having God's vision. We go back to Numbers 13. We read the story of the 12 spies who were sent to the promised land to check things out. They spent 40 days in that land, and it turned out the land was exactly as God had promised. It was overflowing with resources, as the phrase is, a land flowing with milk and honey. In fact, the land was so fruitful that according to Numbers 13, verse 23, they plucked one cluster of grapes, and it took two men to carry it on a pole. In fact, it was such a singular event, they even named that valley where they found it the Valley of the Cluster, the Valley of Eshel. Yet, even after seeing the victory of God over the greatest army of that time, the Egyptian army, after watching God's presence guiding them through the wilderness for 40 years, supplying them with manna, having clothes that never wore out, ten of the spies looked at that land and said, with, with a worldly perspective, we can't, we can't take the land. And they convinced the entire Israelite nation to have a worldly view. Oh, they're too big for us. We can't do it. Only two men resisted that call. It got so bad that Israel even wanted to rebel against Moses and Aaron. Because they did not choose to see things with God's vision. Because of that, everyone aged 20 and over perished and never did see the promised land. But now, let's look at the rest of the story. When God's vision is used, here's a group of people. Either they weren't born yet or they were under the age of 20 when Israel left Egypt. We can see the end result of that new generation in the book of Joshua. They saw the same facts. They'd grown up with the manna, the presence of God, clothes that never wore out. 
And yet, they took those same facts and applied a different vision. The record of their entry into the promised land is found in the first six chapters of Joshua. First, the Israelites sent two spies to Jericho. Then in chapter 3, knowing there was a fortified city that they were going to have to conquer, they crossed the Jordan at flood stage without hesitation. And look and see what their instructions are in Joshua chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. The river is flooding. And the instructions are, let the priests walk up to the river, and when their feet touch the river's edge, the water will stop. Does that make any sense from a worldly perspective? Just keep walking. Just keep walking. It'll happen. You know what? They kept walking, and it did. Then in chapter 4, they set up a memorial on the other side of the Jordan, on the side they were supposed to conquer, an expectation of winning before the event. This is going to be a memorial for all generations that what God promised did come to pass, even before it happened. Then in chapter 5, look at this, from a human perspective, if you're going to disable your army, where would the most logical place to do that be? It'd be on the previous side of the Jordan while the Jordan was in flood stage so nobody could come across and attack. But that's not what they did. They crossed the Jordan into enemy territory and then they circumcised their whole army. The law of Moses says circumcise on the eighth day because that's the best day for a boy to get circumcised. It happens quick. It heals quick. When you're a man, wow. That's painful, and it takes a long time to heal. So you've just disabled your entire army because none of them were circumcised. They hadn't been circumcised when they were the 40 years in the desert. You just disabled your entire army on the enemy's side. From a worldly perspective, that's nuts. But from God's perspective, God knew the crossing of the Jordan during flood season had drained the spirit of their enemies. Finally, in chapter 6, God gives the Israelites a really weird battle plan. Here's what you guys are going to do. You're not going to say a word. Silent. And you're going to walk around the city and then you're going to go back to camp. And then you do that again tomorrow. And the next day. And the next day. And the next day. And the next day. Total silent. Walk around once. Go home. On the seventh day, you're going to walk around seven times. Still, not a word. Until you hear the priests blow the trumpet. And then shout and you're going to run into the city. It's a walled city. But there's no hesitation. There's no dissension. They follow God's plan. And won an amazing victory. And at the end of his life, in Joshua chapter 24, he had been only one of two people who had followed God's vision out of the millions 
whom God had rescued from Egyptian slavery. And he challenged, at the end of his life, he challenged that new generation to choose you this day whom you will serve. And that same challenge is left to us today. As the writer of Hebrews says over and over again in Hebrews 3 and 4, chapters 3 and 4, repeatedly quoting David from Psalm 95, today, if you will hear his voice, that's the voice we need to hear. That's the vision we need to have. While the world tries to whisper to us to turn around, run from the promised land, we need to listen to the voice of God. We need to have his vision. If there's anyone here who wants to have that vision and needs to be part of God's family and hasn't yet obeyed, we give you this opportunity to come forward or to talk with our elders in the back as we stand and sing this invitation song.